This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... F-20 Time Travel. Dream Painter Joseph Yoakum. And my Austin Book Hall. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of bugles, and the benevolent gaze of Steve Marriott coming alive. Welcome us. Hold on. Hold on, Robin. Didn't the shag carpeting in the gaming hut used to be kind of an off green and now it's kind of a muddy hazel brown? Well, yes. And also, I, I think the recording artist that we used to use the gatefold cover of as a jam screen was not a robot from the far future with a Vorpal sword. Pretty sure. He had a vocoder, but... That's just Steve Marriott. It was a, it was a look that his uh, advisors, they said robots are in. But anyway, enough about the former lead singer of Humble Pie and beloved live triple gatefold, uh, triple platinum artist, Steve Marriott. We are in the gaming hut at the behest of beloved Patreon backer Ian Carlson, who says, I've recently embarked on a splashy, mind-bending F20 campaign, it's Numenera, with a well-seasoned group of players and find myself wondering... Is now my chance to finally experiment with time travel, and that explains why the carpet changed, Robin. That's it. He's experimenting uh, with time no, travel. Steve Marriott deal. Now I get it. All right. If so, what forms of time travel are best to use when trying to keep forward momentum in an RPG? What emotional payoffs should I be looking out for? And with no fantasy Hitler for the players to argue about killing, what other time traveling tropes or pitfalls should I seek? To avoid, this is a big box of question, Robin. And yes, almost as if there's multiple ancient eras of questions that are dimly remembered 
in our far future timeline and we have to reach back and, and try and figure them out and parse them all. Exactly. But uh, looking back from this uh, far future where elves, men, and kobolds live in harmony in silver jumpsuits and fly their spaceships from the barrier peaks, what about time travel in fantasy games? Mostly in my experience, Robin, I will begin by answering. We are in a, in a chrono tizzy. Yeah. In my experience, when the players get their hands on time travel, they're mostly trying to undo their own stupid mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> not do anything, you know, world shapey. As but how you can out. Ian Carlson count on players making stupid mistakes, Ken? What are the odds of that happening? <laughs> yes, I guess uh, many players are, are just uh, moving through the adventure efficiently and calmly. they're well-seasoned. And they are well-seasoned, I'm sure. Uh, just like these delicious bugles. Yeah, so that's, that's my general uh, experience. And rather than dive off into a lot of lessons learned from that. What do you, what do you do what, uh, with uh, time travel in games that are not conventionally time travel in F20 sorts of games, or has that clumped up on you? I've never actually done uh, time travel in an F20 context. And the reason for that is that I think the, the appeal of the time travel genre is that you go back and experience history. But mm -hmm. if the history is the, you know, the 10,000 year history of the elves, do you have the same emotional connection to that the way that you do to World War II and the Crusades and, you know, the beginning of the Meiji era or whatever it is that if the players lack a frame of reference for what the past is in their setting, other than the sort of paradox stories that you're setting up, it's not clear where the fun having is on that unless they are steeped in a setting that has a long timeline and know it and care about it. And of course, Numenara, not that I'm the world's biggest Numenara expert, is set up so that it, there's a whole bunch of prior civilizations, mm -hmm. big mega civilizations, one after the other, uh, that all eventually lead to beholders and F20 hijinks at the end. Right. And these are dimly understood and weird. And so if you successfully made people interested enough about civilization number four or civilization number six, the fun of going back and exploring that is, I guess, your key. And I uh, imagine the point of that would be that you are F20 characters, but you're now moving back far enough into history in this case where there aren't elves and orcs and beholders. There's, you know, uh, space facilitators and, you know, you're moving back into a whole other genre and that gets you into the, you know, the, the barrier peaks thing, the collision mm -hmm. between fantasy and science fiction. I suppose the other thing is to have, you know, stuff about the past that you really need to know to go back into the past and get information that affects your situation in the present, right? That you can mm -hmm. cure the king if only you can go back to the third millennia and find this special, you know, king-curing route that no longer exists anymore. Right. But that's, again, that's just MacGuffinry unless the experience of being back in that time period is radically different and feels that way. Yeah, I think that... Time travel in a fantasy context, by and large, should feel weirder and more dangerous and more fraught than straight up science fiction-y, you know, get on your bike and travel back to, you know, World War I type time travel does. Because, you know, everything in a fantasy game should feel weird and strange and overwrought to some extent, because you're in a world of fantasy where you can, you know, throw fireballs with your fingertips. You're not in a conventional world where you have to, you know, have a gun to throw fireballs. So the... Messing around with time, I think, unless you are somehow part of some sort of, you know, elite time priesthood, 
is really the sort of thing that even in a fantasy world should be signaling, oh, this is sort of beyond the pale. This is, you know, messing with stuff that would rather not be messed with. And so if you go back, even as conventionally science fantasy, a world as Numenera, if you're going back into a previous age, it really should be like all the rules are different. You don't know what's going on. None of your Numenaran magics and uh, uh, psionics and whatnot work anymore because the, the conditions under your feet have changed. And likewise, in a more conventional fantasy world, going back in time is obviously opposing the, you know, the dictates of the god of destiny or the god of boundaries or the god of, you know, the sky who's in charge of keeping the calendar going. And so whenever you're doing something that is contravening these fundamental forces, it should be super dangerous and super scary and put you in a situation of we don't really have time to dink around and meet our grandfather and, you know, go hunting for uh, anything besides King curing rut. This has to be a focused and dangerous trip. It, it, so it's MacGuffinry, as you say, but it should be MacGuffinry with visibly high stakes. And if that means when you go forward, everyone roll and uh, anyone who rolls, you know, under a two or under a three, oh, you've been erased from the timeline or, you know, suddenly you're a bard instead of a illusionist. Good for you. There should be stakes. There should be gravity in it, I feel. Right. And I, I suppose the way to do that is kind of your, the, the only places in time that you can drop in are right at all of the crucial points in time where you're at the maximum crisis. So, you know, you can show up and meet the equivalent of, of Frodo fighting with the equivalent of Gollum on Mount Doom, but you can't appear at the breakfast nook in Bree, that it's always, you know, you're dropped right into a fight every time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another fun and perverse thing to do, I suppose, would be that each different timeline has a different iteration of, of the rules, right? There's enough different versions <laughs> of F20. And it's like, well, here's your 13th age characters. And, and then the next time it's like, oh, it's D it's advanced Dungeons and Dragons time. And, you don't know the rules and exactly how the spells work. Well, guess what? Yes, you're right. You're being uh, rewritten and you could, you know, uh, you could branch out even and uh, oh, guess what? I've dusted off my fantasy hero character sheets that I uh, generated uh, back in 1986 and you're playing these characters this time. You can do <laughs> something that might be more patience trying uh, than than fun for the uh, even for a well-seasoned group. I think it's fun if everyone is aware it's not going to last longer than this session, and if you've already done all the conversion yourself. Yes. So they show up, and and sure enough, they're they're in the fantasy trip. They're you know, oh man, that's a thing. You know, we've only got three stats now. That's messed up, and so that's just good fun. I feel in a sort of a meta way, and then you can use that as the at table dissonance that time travel should evoke in the characters. But I would, I would caution yourself against saying, Oh, what a great idea. I'm going to do a, a campaign that centers on time travel. And we're going to go back and forth between editions of D and D and all the way back to zero D and D. And we're going to find the original polyhedral head of Vecna that, you know, exists in, you know, Lake Geneva in this yes. fantasy realm. No, when don't you go back to OD and D, you have to yeah. use chits instead of mm -hmm. your uh, polyhedral. Right. And then you have to have a caller. It's just, yeah, I would say, that is a funny once, not a funny a lot of times thing, but I, I do like it. I, I, I love yeah, that I, as I a think vibe. You'd, you'd do it once. And the other thing I would do, I think, would be to uh, lean into the idea that normally in a time travel game, you are either trying to avoid radically altering the timeline, right? You're just trying to change it one little bit 
so that your grandfather doesn't die, mm-hmm. or you are the time narcs and your whole job is to prevent branching of the timeline. Right. Whereas here, since it's not a history that you have any sort of attachment to and that you're already in a completely inaccessible world, uh, or not completely inaccessible, but not not Earth, you're not starting with Earth, mm-hmm. that you can feel free to change it a lot so that each time you go back in time, when they go back to their original timeline, things are radically altered and you know, you're married to a different person and the, the, the orcs are all lizards now. And, uh, the space king is now a, a set of twins and, uh, you know, everything is radically altered each time. And you could, you could go to the grandmother swallowed a fly theory of time travel where each change they make fixes one thing, erects another thing. So I have to keep going back or you could make it so that, you know, initially, your world is, you know, utterly horrible and it's the worst possible version of Numenar or whatever it is. And that your goal is to slowly, mission by mission, turn it back to the uh, fun, beautiful Numenar that uh, Monty Cook advertised to you. Yeah. And again, that gets us into a suddenly time travel is our job as opposed to this is a weird, strange thing we never want to do again. And I guess that depends on to what extent do you want to do that? But I feel like, uh, as you noted at the beginning, if you're got a, a bunch of players that really love time travel, they probably would rather do it in a history that they know and care about. And I can imagine, because I have a vast capacity for imagining, people who want to time travel back into the you know past ages of Middle Earth, maybe. And so you have some weird extra uh, ring that was made that you know is bound all the way back to the first age, and so you can travel back and forth like a shuttlecock, if you really, really care about the differences between the ages, you want to go back to Silmarillion times and have fun in the footnotes. But I could also see putting a fantasy world into the past of a normal time travel game and sort of surprising people with it. It's like you go far enough back and, oh, look at that. You're in the Hyborian age. Robert E. Howard was right. Before the sinking of Atlantis, there was an age untold, and it was pretty great. And there was all kind of, you know, solid gold goodies and people running around in thongs. And my golly, that's a thing. And that could either be a one-off where it's a a bit that you do for your regular time travel game. And everyone then plays, you know, the Conan game uh, from Modifius or GURPS Conan or whatever you've got handy. And then you go back and you say, well, we're never doing that again. Or suddenly that becomes a, a steady part of the game that it's, you know, Sort of the more traditional fantasy trope of, well, are we in boring old Earth, even Earth with time travel, or are we in fun, exciting Hyborian times when, you know, we can uh, skewer things without letter hindrance? That's pretty great. Love a, love a good skewering. So I, I feel like that's another option in terms of the sort of Macedoine that you're talking about. Do you do we have thoughts about emotional payoffs since Ian Carlson was so nice as to ask them specifically? Or is it just, golly, I thought that mountain range was on the other side type emotional payoffs? Well, there's, there's two ways to do it. Either you can just say, well, all of time is a place to loot. Mm-hmm. And that's very F20. Or I think you go back to the, you have very specific goals about the current society that you're living in and you want to change it these six different ways. And so that each mission you go on is about moving the time back, you know, retroactively changing your own present by messing with the past. And you feel a sense of accomplishment each time you get a little closer to where you want to be so that there's almost sort of a building element to it, where instead of, you know, building a traditional empire or a a feudal fief or whatever, you're trying to brick by brick build a new society 
by uh, messing with the past and, and changing things. And, you know, if that's going back and, you know, identifying the six great villains of history who make everything terrible and, you know, really understanding and feeling how terrible they are before you go and lay an F-20 whooping on them, I, I think that's probably your, your payoff, right? That you pr present the current F-20 world and say, while, you know, the lava runs through the streets because of uh, Morgoth the Terrible and uh, no one can learn a new language due to Javriel the uh, en Enchanter and, you know, th this is why everything is so terrible. And uh, and then it's like, okay, we can fix the, the world just by going back and beating up evil historical uh, figures in cool different places that feel and perhaps to have slightly different rules than all of these other places. I think that's where you get your payoff. And I guess uh, that leads us to, and I'm, I think Doctor Who did this once, um, and it's certainly a good one, in which if you start down that road, eventually you start hearing that the worst possible bad guys that, that ruined everything were these, you know, mysterious four or five figures that showed up once and did a horrible thing that destroyed, you know, all of society and time and left everyone grubbing in the dirt for even the simplest kind of blessed magic. And of course they recognize, oh, that's us, but we haven't done it yet. But at some point we're going to do it unless we can somehow undo this catastrophic mistake that we've already done. Go into the future and, and fight ourselves right before we do that. Right. Or we'll go back in time and destroy our ability to go back in time so that we never, you know, uh, ruin everything as the as the five shadows or whatever that destroyed everything. And, and that's great, is that you suddenly recognize the crumbling, you know, features of your own self, you know, falling off the mountain instead of, you know, the giants at Angabard or wherever it was. You know, it's like, oh, that's you and that's the cleric over there. Ooh, what did we do? What are we going to have done is yeah. uh, the question. And I feel like that's another very strong emotional payoff that you can only get with a time travel game. And it's very hard to do that without that sort of monkeying around with causality. And that does not require human history or earth history to be recognizable. It just requires you to have just the smidgenest of a conscience as a, as a player. And okay. Well, that, before that may you, be a big ass. You're, you're about to wreck it, Ken. So <laughs> let's get out of here and uh, into another time stream and or segment. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age style icons, or Bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula 
Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agents Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in Print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF, entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. The string quartet playing in the corner, the... Finger sandwiches being passed around by immaculately garbed waitstaff. The signs in multiple languages from multiple faultlessly postmodern viewpoints welcome us into the culture hut. And by finger sandwiches, I, of course, mean black coffee served in Chicago's whole coffee house in 1968. And by signs in multiple languages, I mean sort of random quotations strung across a colored pencil piece of art because we're in an outsidery version of the culture hut when Patreon backer, beloved Patreon backer and artist himself, Jason Thompson asks Joseph Yoakum, self-taught artist and old timey circus traveler do his paintings and paintings is a, you know, a slightly big word for what they are because they're mostly in pastels and colored pencils. As I said, actually depict the dreamlands. And uh, Robin, I guess you uh, looked into this as did I. Right. So I guess the first thing, either before or after this segment, depending on whether you're driving a car or not, mm-hmm. Google image search for Joseph E. Yoakum and get a, a sense of the illustrations and drawings that we're trying to describe here. So he's a, a self-taught artist. At the time, he was promoted in the time when he was uh, working was like the late 60s and early 70s. He was promoted as Chicago's original primitive. Mm-hmm. Not at all putting thumbs on the on the scale there. But his work sort of uh, mostly depicts, uh, there's two strands of it. There are portraits. They're very simple looking images of sort of people's faces floating in a blank background. Uh, often they're uh, either figures from b- black history or sometimes celebrities in uh, magazines. But the stuff that I think is most of interest to us here are his dreamlike landscapes. Now, dreamlike is doing a lot of work there because he's depicting places in the world that he has uh, seen or says he has seen because there might be a yarn or two in his biography, but also not uh, because the whole traveling the world with the circus part appears to be real. But at any rate, these landscapes sort of depict sort of an organic flowing world. It doesn't have a three point perspective. And I think that's what makes it all seem dreamy and strange. And even like the rocks sort of tend to have kind of faces to them and that the trees are very non-representational and it, and often it's sort of a depopulated landscape and it's both alive but sort of empty and implies a solitude and i think that's where we see the the kinship to uh lovecraft's dreamlands not that it's symbolist in any way it's surreal only in the style of its depiction but there is something very beguiling about it and he did have a kind of a mystical uh, viewpoint toward it but can i guess this is a point where we move from trying to to verbally describe what yeah. his art looks like yes. to you're maybe running us through 
his very interesting uh, story. Yeah. Joseph Yoakum is born probably in 1891. He claimed at least three other birth years, depending on who he was talking to in Missouri. He was an African-American. His father may have been of Cherokee descent. He himself claimed Navajo descent. He used to pronounce it that way. Said he was born in Arizona, had a great uh, feeling for Arizona. It shows up in his art repeatedly. Uh, ran away to join the circus, though, wh- whichever state he was born in, and ran around, claims to have been the personal valet of John Ringling of the Ringling Brothers. I guess you can't climb higher in circus world than that, but as so often happens in circus life, he gets married, ends his rambling, becomes a coal miner to support his wife, and then joins the army in 1918, goes to France with a technical battalion, comes back, gets married again in 1929. Uh, Throughout this time, he's been wandering all over America and claims, of course, to have wandered all over the world. Uh, At one time, claims to have been in a plane forced down by flying saucers over Arizona, possibly in 1944. By 1942, anyway, he's moved to Chicago with his second wife and was running an ice cream parlor for a bit. Uh, In 1946, he's institutionalized briefly, And then in 1962, inspired by a dream, he begins drawing in colored pencils and eventually colored pencils and pastels, sometimes ballpoint. Uh, He discovers magic markers later in his life. Yeah, his art supplies are all purchased at Woolworths. Right. And later he meets artists and they say, stop using that brown manila paper to draw and it'll look better. And he he does. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's very much something that he's just going off and doing initially because he feels inspired. Right. Yeah, he says, uh, the drawings are unfolded to me, a spiritual unfoldment. After I draw them, I have a spiritual remembrance, and I know what is pictured. Uh, his religious beliefs seem to have been a sort of a, a pantheism, possibly informed by his Christian science background, that the world is always being created anew for our eyes. So take that for what it's worth. At any rate, starting in 1962, as I say, he's been drawing little pastel pictures and selling them for a quarter out of a little storefront on 82nd Street in the South Side. Yeah, he initially tries to set up uh, a ceramics studio, mm-hmm. but he's denied a business license. Because so <laughs> that involves kilns. Yeah. And he's in the cheapest imaginable sort of storefront in a not brilliantly, even then, good part of, of the city. But uh, in 1967, a anthropology professor discovers him by looking at his art and thinking it looks kind of Aztec, goes in, talks to him, buys some art, a Chicago newspaper uh, sort of writes him up, and he winds up connected by a art histor- a future art historian named Halstead, uh, no relation to the street, with the Ed Sherbin Gallery in 1968, where he has his first formal show. And this, this Ed Sherbin turns out to be uh, something of a weasel, because yeah. he... He just says, hey, sign this. And then it turns out that without realizing it, that he has signed an exclusive deal that, guess what, is onerous and extremely exploitative. And it's not until he gets a bit more experience with the so-called legit art world and meets other artists that they say, hey, wait a minute, you're being ripped off. And he has to give this guy $15,000 worth of his work to get out of this blatantly exploitative contract that he yep. signed, uh, not even under duress, but unknowingly, which I guess if they'd gone to court, you know, that wouldn't have held up, but it was easier just to give them all these drawings. Well, I, I feel like in 1968, if you take a white gallery owner on the North side to court and you're an elderly black man, you still don't win. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure that <laughs> entered into his thinking. In fact, one of the reasons apparently that he described himself as Navajo, as in Navajo Joseph mm-hmm. was that, 
he felt after this experience with Sherbin that he would be ripped off less if he was promoted as a Native American artist than he, than as he would have as a black man. Yeah. And he definitely had a, a, a sense of kinship to American Indians, just like most Americans of that generation did. You know, if he's born in the 1890s, he's born right as the frontier is being closed. And there is a very strong sense that the, you know, the natives are just us, but, you know, caught a bad break sort of thing because everyone wants to forget the genociding and whatnot. So anyway, he begins to exhibit, uh, he influences the Chicago imagists. These are the art world people that, as you mentioned, say Ed Sherman is a weasel. Stop doing that. Um, he's exhibited at, uh, the Museum of Modern Art in 1971, very much against his will. He threatens to get the federal marshals to take the art down. And they have to explain to him that won't work. So he's, uh, he's drawing very prolifically throughout this period of his life, especially once he starts, you know, using a decent paper, you know, at least one picture a day. In, in many cases in 1972, he gets a one man show at the Whitney and it opens the week before he dies, which is Christmas of 1972 in a nursing home in Chicago. And, uh, that is the short meteoric career of Joe Yoakum, you know, in a nutshell, he does have a very, you know, sort of profound influence on the imagists because he's not abstract. He's drawing a thing and he's drawing a thing exactly as he wants to. And these guys all say, well, we're white artists who have every possible advantage handed to us. Why are we being bullied into being abstract? And so Joe's example in many cases is what sort of turns them to drawing what they want to draw in the first place. And so it's, you know, he's, you know, the members of the Harry who all say it was Joe Yoakum is one of the big uh, people that sort of broke us out of our rut. And uh, he, he managed to have a remarkable effect on the Chicago art scene for someone who was never part of it in that he didn't really like artists, didn't, you know, want to hang out with them per se, never was part of the arts community. And as I mentioned, often would get angry if he was hung in a gallery without his explicit permission. As I think any artist does. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, some artists understand they've sold the piece and therefore they don't get to say what happens to it. Joe Yoakum believed that he had a sort of a moral copyright in it and could say, you know, what is or isn't going to be done with it forever. So I guess he was French in that way, not Navajo or African-American, but he, he did have sort of an outsized impact. Uh, and that's mostly because this little knot of Chicago artists glommed onto his work and have kept it reasonably alive. He gets sort of about every 10 or 15 years, someone comes through and says, we should do a big Joe Yoakum show. And uh, the smart gallery here in Hyde Park has done them. They've got Joe Yoakum's. I think a lot of the Chicago institutional art world has got uh, enough Yoakum that they consider it a, a key part of their collections as well. Yeah. In, in 2021, there was a traveling uh, retrospective called Joseph E. Yoakum, What I Saw. And it's curated by Mark Pascal and Esther Adler and the catalog from that show. They edited that as well. So, And it's a lovely book. I'm holding it right now. There we go. So I, I guess the point comes now where, where he answered the Dreamlands question. So clearly he dreamed these places. Mm -hmm. Some of the places that he drew do correlate to the stops of the circus that he uh, was, uh, was with. And because of the style of the depiction, they do seem very uh, dreamy, not Lovecraft symbolist dreamy, but dreamy nonetheless. Uh, and he's seeing them in his dreams. And so this, I guess, gets us back to the idea that we played with in various 
gumshoe things, mostly uh, Dreamhounds of Paris, that artists can change the way the Dreamlands looks. And uh, he's maybe kind of a, a renovation project who returns it to a state of beauty after the surrealists have messed with it in the 30s and possibly even the pop art people are messing with it uh, in the 60s. So he may be someone that your Delta Green agents go to as a sort of a, a portal if they uh, kind of focus on his work and, and uh, you know, really look at it and really feel his spiritual resonance uh, that they then will, you know, be able to enter a nice part of the dreamlands, a part that hasn't been wrecked and uh, have a, at least a, a safe landing before they move further into other areas that have been uh, wrecked by more destructive and reckless artists. And the, you know, correlation between places on Earth and places in the Dreamlands is something that goes back to Lovecraft, of course, with the little part of Cornwall that Karenis dreams into Caliphaeus. So you could argue that by knitting these dream visions of places to the actual places or to the names of the places, Yoakum is doing sort of a Karenis-type job of, of taking... The, the most dreamlike aspects of Arizona or Vermont or wherever he's drawing and thrusting them into the dreamlands as sort of like a buttress or a bulwark, if you will, against the sort of uh, nonsensical, crazy art that the surrealists and then the uh, pop artists are doing. And his work could be sort of a, a map of places where the dreamlands and the real world overlap. So yeah. if, if, he, if he's drawing, you know, rocks in the ocean in the Baltic, the U agents can take a look. Oh, well, we got to go there because that's where, you know, the, the sea ghouls will start swimming through. Or conversely, this is an, a safe entry point that we can get into while waking. Although, you know, entering the dreamlands while waking, while possible, is also dangerous because uh, it's unwise. If you die in your physical form, you, you just die, but mm -hmm. it gives you other advantages as well. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm seldom disappointed in my uh, Fall of Delta Green group, but the fact that their Chicago team came apart in multiple betrayals before they got to have the Joe Yoakum adventure is a little bit uh, vexing. I'll say that. And, and it would have been in this case, it would have been that, yes, he's a gateway into the dreamlands, but rather than being a sort of knowing gateway in the way that Cocteau or those guys are, he is a unwitting, you know, transmitter into the dreamlands and transmitter back. I've already established in my game that certain People are just born with this ability to, to flick back and forth. The fact that no one knows where he was born means I could have moved it to Roswell or, or wherever else I want, you know, maybe Aurora, Texas for the Aurora airship sighting. And so it would have been not so much that he is a, a savant or a wizard, but that he is a resource that the various occult forces fight over, which is not unlike what he actually was in that he was very seldom seen as a human being. He was always seen either as a sort of inspirational symbol or as a meal ticket by people like Ed Sherman or MoMA. And so that role of, of uh, Joe Yoakum is that the player characters, the players will be like, oh, we have to not let anything bad happen to this nice old man. But as Delta Green agents, they're like, but the nice old man is a neutron bomb wandering around. What do we do? And that sets up a, a perfectly Delta Green moral dilemma. Uh, well, uh, once we're faced with a moral dilemma, I think we need to cleanse ourselves of it by bathing in the waters of this commercial and then see what uh, waits for us on the other side.
The best of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive Through. Shield this podcast from beholders' time travel rays by throwing in with such beloved Patreon backers as... Mike Merles! Rich Renallo! Jeremy French! John Kingdon! And Kevin J. Maroney! So the wheels of the truck go round and round, and that truck contains some books that Ken has had shipped to himself. Uh, they're currently in transit, so we will, will not hear him lovingly caressing them, but nonetheless, it's time for Ken's bookshelf, as Ken tells us about the uh, treasures that he brought back from Austin, Texas. And Ken, tell us a little bit about the uh, bookstores that you relieved of their products. Uh, this year, I hit, as I often do, South Congress Books, which is a more of an antiquarian bookstore than it is a regular old used bookstore. They have used books, but they know what they're worth, so you have to really have an eye out for bargains and for things that you know, you're not going to get anywhere else. Uh, Book People, which is a giant independent bookstore, the way that Borders used to be before it put on the ring and uh, became, you know, a Dark Lord. And it has a smallish used section, but a lot of the books that I got from there are new books because I love independent bookstores, even if I have to pay full price. Austin Books and Comics, a gigantic and wonderful comic book store. And of course, there's like eight half-price books locations in Austin, and I went to the good one on Lamar, the gigantic one. So that is my Austin book haul. Austin is rich in many wonderful things, bookstores not least among them. Well, without further ado, because uh, we got to get through our bookshelf segments, let's get started with Rock Art of the Dreamtime, Images of Ancient Australia by Josephine Flood. And this is a book that is a overview of the entire corpus or as much as they can fit into a thickish book of the rock art of Aboriginal Australians. And it says, this is what's going on in the Northern territory. This is what's in Western Australia. This is in this section. This is another section. And it's basically a in-depth examination of that artistic tradition as much as, you know, is known at that time that the book was written, which I think is the late nineties. And, it's a, you know, big general catalog the way you would have, you know, if you had a book that said Renaissance art, you'd know what's in it. Well, this is that, except it's Aboriginal rock art. And obviously petroglyphs, the rest of it is fascinating on a sort of archaeo anomaly type way. Part of it is just great, wonderful, weird rock art. And part of it is I didn't have anything that was a full, you know, soup to nuts uh, of that artistic tradition, and it's good that I have it now. And next we come to Miss Fury, Sensational Sundays, 1941 to 1944 by Tarpe Mills, edited by Trina Robbins. And if we know those names, you know, this is comic strips. This is comic strips. Uh, Miss Fury what began as a Sunday comics insert, much like uh, the Spirit did, and she was the first female superhero 
created by a female superhero creator, Tarpe Mills. And Miss Fury had a cat suit that had magical powers. And when she put it on, she got super strength and uh, invulnerability. But one of the nice things about Miss Fury is she didn't wait around to put on the cat suit. If she saw bad doings happening while she's out on the town in her debutante gown, she'll just go beat the heck out of them that way, too. So she starts as sort of a fighting yank type character and slowly becomes more of a Batman and the art is actually pretty terrific for, for Golden Age. And it is, you know, vitally fun part of the, of that, you know, building that comics continuity out. And sadly, Miss Fury has been basically forgotten, which is, I guess, what happens to all of us eventually. Well, I, I wonder what the right situation is. I wonder if in this age of, uh, turn everything into a movie, someone will uh, stumble across her as a relatively untrammeled comic continuity sticking with uh, comics but also with pulp covers we come to chroma the art of alex schomburg by john gustafson yeah uh, alex schomburg is a guy that i encountered as a comics cover artist many other people encountered him as the painter of sf book and magazine covers and the book in it's only 108 pages sadly so it can't really do either of those careers justice but I got onto him through the Nidor comics uh, lines that he did illustrations for. But he also did a lot of early Marvel back when it was timely and uh, comics. So he did lots of Marvel mystery and all winners. Uh, he has sort of a, a gigantism style as he as he goes on. So when Captain America and Namor are kicking the heck out of the Nazis, they're like, you know, giants and the Nazis are tiny little pygmies being batted around by Captain America's shield or, or whatever. And that's uh, the same way that his... His uh, Nidor heroes, like, you know, Pyro Man is just looming enormously on the on the uh, background, you know, rocketing a Japanese aircraft carrier to death with his electrical powers. Right. Well, just like the Egyptians, the more important yeah, you are, the exactly. bigger you are in the picture. And uh, it, it all works really well. He's a, a superb draftsman as well as a great artist. His true metier was not this pen and ink stuff. It was airbrushing, which is what he did on the uh, covers of these uh, science fiction books. And... That was really sort of a, a revelation to me because I was barely familiar with him as an SF artist in that tradition. And, you know, all the great SF artists, you know, looked up to him and, and admired him and were just as surprised. Kelly Frias was just as surprised to discover that Alex Schomburg had drawn comics as I was to discover that he, you know, painted spaceships. So it's a, uh, it, it's, it's quite a, it, it's, it's quite a book. It, it, it's only real sin as being too short. And Alex Schomburg had, quite a life from being born in Puerto Rico to having at least three careers as a nerd artist supreme. Is there anything that need be said about the life of Thomas More by Peter Ackroyd other than that it is the life of Thomas More by Peter Ackroyd? I feel like that is one of those, the book sells itself. And if <laughs> did, it doesn't did you sell find it, it in the self-explanatory section? <laughs> yes, it was. It was in the obviously section um, there at uh, half price. Yeah, it's, it's a life of Thomas More. It's by Peter Ackroyd. What more can I say to anybody? Therefore, we next come to The Speedy Extinction of Evil and Misery, selected prose of James Thompson, BV, edited by William David Schaefer. This, to me, not self-explanatory. Not self-explanatory. James Thompson is the author, if you know him at all, you know his poem, City of the Dreadful Night. Well, it turns out, <laughs> like most people who are famous for one poem, he did a lot of other writing, including sort of neo-Swiftian essays. He was early Victorian. BV was the name under which he wrote these essays. And maybe a feel of it can be garnered from the fact that the speedy extinction of evil and misery is his essay in praise of suicide. 
So we are not exactly dealing with a, a happy-go-lucky fellow, as, again, could have been guessed by City of Dreadful Night. But I didn't know anything about him except for that poem, and I thought this was a great way to get James Thompson under my arm and uh, figure out what's going on with this guy. Back into comics for a sec, or I guess manga. We come to H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mounds of Madness, adaptation and manga, artwork by Gutanabe. This is just gorgeous. I have Gutanabe's earlier Lovecraft anthology, The Hound and Other Stories. It's great. It's classic, uh, super detailed, super draftsmanly manga art. Mountains of Madness is no different. Every rivet on the plane, every finial of the of the creatures is there. It, it's just gorgeous. It's a little pricey, but uh, I felt it was worth it, and it's just lovely. The Lovecraft adapts better to comics, I feel, than a lot of other writers, and it's because of the implicit challenge of, oh, this is indescribable. I can't bother to, ex- oh, no, 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 no. And even when he does super explain things and describe them, as he does in Mountains of Madness, that then just sends artists onto a whole nother tear. So it's uh, it's a great book, or a great pair of books. Right, and I imagine some things, like the scene where the explorers look at all of the wall art uh, is uh, probably, you know, rife for adaptation of comics. Absolutely, yeah. Better in, in visually than in prose. Now we make a hard right turn, or a hard left turn, or I don't know what direction, from the Mountains of Madness. I guess it's upward turn. It's a north turn. To <laughs> Ancient Anchor by Michael Freeman and Claude Jacques. And this is just what it says. It is Angkor Wat uh, laid out. This is sort of a tour book. So if you're at Angkor, you can say, oh, that's that wall. But it's also a explanation of who's that guy in the sculpture and what do we know about him and what's going on with this. So similarly, you might see a book like this about Notre Dame that explains all of the sculptures and all the niches and everything. Well, Angkor is a city, not a cathedral. So there's much more stuff to uh, deal with. And this is, you know, uh, the most comprehensive description slash study slash photographic essay about Angkor that I've ever seen. So glad to have it. Right. Back to the self-explanatory for an example of something sort of, I, I imagine, a bedrock part of your library. We come to the Cambridge History of Southeast Asia, Volume 1, Part 2, from 1500 to 1800, edited by Nicholas Tarling. Yeah, I, I got very interested in Southeast Asia when I was asked long ago to do a, a piece on the mythos in Southeast Asia, and I discovered, much to my alarm, that there were even by the 1960s, literally nine sites in a area basically the size of Europe that had ever been explored archaeologically in any detail. And that set me off a bit. So the fact that it was sort of a hole in my, in, in my knowledge uh, interested me. And then, of course, by the 1500 to 1800, by that sort of early modern era, you're getting into possibly the most exciting period of Southeast Asia because you've got pirates and weird Chinese mandarins and all kind of other excitement. Plus you have the rise and fall of the various kingdoms that we now by 1500 sort of know and recognize as opposed to the completely alien countries that you have to, you know, really do deep dives into. So I think I have volume one, part one. I'm pretty sure I do. And now I have volume one, part two. Next we come to escape from Rome, the failure of empire and the road to prosperity by Walter Scheidel. This is one of those big think books that purports to be a big history of the West. And in this case, what uh, Walter Scheidel is doing is doing a comparative big history between the Empire of Rome that fell into a million pieces and was never regenerated, and India, which had sort of recurrent empires that then fell into a million pieces, and China, which basically, after a couple of uh, bad scares, stayed unitary. 
And he asks the question and answers it, as some historians have, that it's the competition amongst all the little bits that caused the West to rise. And therefore, the fall of Rome is the best thing that ever happened to the West. And Scheidel is basically laying out that point. I'm not sure how far down all of the various roads I want to go with him, but I do love a big history, and I uh, love a comparative history even more. Like Peter Graves in Airplane, uh, you have an interest in gladiators, and so you picked up Gladiators and Beast Hunts, Arena Sports of Ancient Rome by Christopher Eplett. Yeah, this I mostly picked up for the Beast Hunts portion of it, the sort of the infrastructure behind the gladiatorial games, and not the gladiators fighting each other, but the people fighting animals part of it was supported by a vast infrastructure of animal hunters called venators that, you know, wandered into Africa and uh, Asia looking for ever more exotic and wild animals to, <laughs> to basically eat gladiators with. And that has always struck me as a wonderful gaming concept. I think you ran a and d game that was basically that at one point, didn't you? And this actually, I think it's maybe the first book I've seen that tries to go in any detail into you know, how being a Venator worked and, you know, what you had to do to get your animals. Uh, did, did you sell to the regional Coliseum in North Africa or did you hold out for the big money but risk losing your animal if you shipped him all the way to Rome? Over to a different empire now, the secret history of the Mongol queens, how the daughters of Genghis Khan rescued his empire by Jack Weatherford. Yeah, this was uh, recommended to me by, I think, Ellen of Pelgrain, and it's a, basically, it, it says, look, the Mongol Khans that we all know and love, they're all living and dying and fighting. What's going on with the people behind the throne, the, the their mothers, and in some cases, wives and daughters? What's that about? And uh, Weatherford is very much a pop historian, so take that for what it's worth. But he goes after the secret history of the Mongols, and rather than focus on Genghis and Ogadai and Batu and Kublai, he focuses on... Bortai, Genghis's wife, and what happens to her after Genghis dies? And how does she guarantee, you know, how does she, you know, put her oar in? And, and that sort of behind the scenes version of the Mongols is, again, a perspective that I didn't already have. So I picked it up on uh, recommendation. A Perfect Red, Empire Espionage and the Quest for the Color of Desire by Amy Butler Greenfield. This is about the uh, attempt to corner the trade in cochineal which is the uh, red insect dye that basically makes Titian red into Titian red instead of dull, stupid red. And as with a lot of these sort of single subject histories, I imagine that there's going to be a lot of big claims made that don't stand up. But if you look at the, at the title there, Robin, it says Empire Espionage and the Quest for the Color of Desire. So we've got alchemy, we've got geopolitics, and we've got spies all in that Endlessly pregnant, endlessly wonderful early modern era. All from crushed up bug carapaces. All from crushed up bug carapaces. So I've, I've enjoyed most of those books, and certainly this is going to be full of uh, probably Spanish and Italian spies I'd never heard of, so I'm I'm excited to, to crack into it. Well, I think uh, it's time for us to take a, a little break and uh, give you time to open up visually and nominally, if not in uh, literal reality, uh, the second box. So let's deke into this little commercial over here, and then we'll be right back. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors 
all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or pre-order your glistening hardback slated for October release. And as promised, we are right back, and we're going to pick up another book now, and that is From a Far Country, Camisards and Huguenots in the Atlantic World by Catherine Randall. Now, Huguenots are just basically French Protestants. The Camisards are like French Pentecostals. They're ecstatic mystics in many ways. And Randall, I think, really wants to talk about Camisards, but she'll bring up the Huguenots when she has to. And so she focuses it on three specific historical French Protestants. There's a guy named Gabriel Bernal, who was the Huguenot, the sort of primus inter pares in Massachusetts. A guy named Ezekiel Carré, who was a Camisard, who influenced Cotton Mather, according to Catherine Randall. I'll believe that when I see it, but I'm interested. And Ellie No, who was a galley slave who escaped and established North America's first school for blacks. And so that is interesting just in and of itself. And of course, the notion of uh, Pentecostalism, avant la lettre, having a possibly foundational role in American religious history is fascinating to itself because, you know, you, you think a lot of the things that happen in American religion are down to basically, you know, post-1900 and the discovery of, of Pentecostalism. Well, if Randall can tie the Camisards into even a bit of the Great Awakening, then Randall has done yeoman work, I would say. Well, now we're going to move into the uh, crime blotter section of your books. With The Thieves of Threadneedle Street, the incredible true story of the American forgers who nearly broke the Bank of England by Nicholas Booth. What period are we talking about? Now, this is the Victorian era, the trial of these four American forgers, and already you can tell who we're going to root for, began in summer of 1873. They began in Chicago, which is another wonderful thing about this story. Uh, the sort of the uh, ringleader of them is a fellow named Austin Bidwell, who I've never heard of. They were chased by the Pinkertons by uh, Alan Pinkerton's son, William. So there's all manner of excitement going on. I, I feel like this is one of those things that uh, Michael Crichton could have turned into a surprisingly uh, mediocre movie, but, you know, full of all manner of, of great Victorian crime stuff. So Now we come to Crescent City Crimes, Old New Orleans, 1718 to 1918 by Charles Cassidy. This is just one of those many, many books that's like, here's a bunch of crime stories about a place that you're maybe visiting as a tourist. And this one is, of course, New Orleans from 1718 when it's founded to 1918 covers sort of the life of Marie Laveau, who is going to be dragged in here on the grounds that maybe she ran a blackmailing ring. There is, you know, the, the Axeman of New Orleans, famously uncaught mass murderer or I, I guess serial killer, technically. I don't think he killed people en masse. So lots of great New Orleans stories. And then even more besides it's, you know, one of those slam dunk setting type places for uh, role-playing games or for any kind of stuff. And also because it's at least half crime, 
it's good for Sheila as well. As is The Inventor and the Tycoon, A Gilded Age Murder and the Birth of Moving Pictures by Edward Ball. Yeah, this is a book that I consulted a great deal during my Unknown Army's Old West game, because The Inventor is Edward Muybridge, the inventor of motion pictures, and The Tycoon is Leland Stanford. And Edward Muybridge, it turns out, killed his wife's boyfriend, which even in 1874, people took a little more seriously, but not so seriously that he wasn't able to get out thanks to Leland Stanford and go on and invent moving pictures. So I think that the murder is sort of their excuse for putting it on the cover that most of it, if I remember correctly, is about the Muybridge-Stanford business relationship. But, you know, the invention of moving pictures by itself, fraught with potential and he, he is a murderer after all. So that's good fun. Yeah. Right? A Gilded Age business relationship and the birth of moving pictures is not a zingy title. Right. Now, here's something that I think Call of Cthulhu GMs uh, will easily reach for. That's Midnight in Cairo, The Divas of Egypt's Roaring Twenties by Raphael Cormac. Yeah, this is basically uh, showbiz. And it's showbiz about a city that you don't really think of as showbiz, but was full of showbiz. Cairo in the 1920s, and there was lots of female singers and performers, just like there was in London and Hollywood and all the other places that you maybe think of as as bigger deals. And it's sort of how pop culture in Egypt begins. And like so many historians of pop culture, Raphael Cormac, I suspect, wants to say, and this is how Egyptian nationalism formed, was around these songs. And I'll bet that's not true, but I'll bet that there's lots of good anecdotes and weirdness and nightclub descriptions that will come in so handy in uh, Call of Cthulhu Adventures or uh, the like. So, Ken, you and I have designed a lot of games, but uh, none of our games helped win World War II. But that brings us to A Game of Birds and Wolves, the ingenious young woman whose secret board game helped win World War II by Simon Parkin. Yeah, this is basically about the wargaming of the Battle of the Atlantic. The actual game was designed by a guy named Gilbert Roberts, who was a naval captain, but he had 10 wrens, members of the Royal Naval Service, women Royal Naval Service, who helped him set it up and play it. And this is about wargaming and also about, you know, I'm sure that these women had a, quite a time of it in World War II. And the notion of wargaming out the Battle of the Atlantic is fascinating on its, its own level. And then I would be interested to see, you know, in, in the movie, obviously, they play the plucky British. And the, this, by the way, the only time I will call the British plucky is the period from 1940 to 1944. <laughs> <laughs> what, they weren't plucky in 39? No, they got in over their own heads. They didn't know what was going on. They were only plucky after the blitz starts. So the uh, the women would play the plucky British and the Germans would be played by a bunch of rich, fat kids from across the lake. Hated British, if you will. But I'll bet it was the Wrens playing both sides because if you had a bunch of rich, fat kids, you... You, you put them on the front line and got them killed at Dunkirk. That's how Britain works. Next, we come to Eyeing the Red Storm, Eisenhower, and the first attempt to build a spy satellite by Robert M. Dinesh. And I guess that suggests that it didn't work. It did not work in that they never built it. It was a program called WS-117L. And rather than the Corona satellite, that is the true father of spy satellite technology, which took pictures in orbit and dropped them onto the Earth to be picked up. The idea here was, that seems ridiculous. Let's take the pictures, turn them into radio waves, and basically fax them to Earth. That would work much better. And it probably would have, but it was slightly above the, you know, the, the technological pay grade of uh, uh, NASA and the Army at the time that Eisenhower wants it built. And by the time Sputnik flies, 
everyone gets thrown into a tizzy and they wind up abandoning it and going for Corona, which is easier and faster. And that's why Corona takes off. But the book makes the argument that WS 117L, you know, solves all the problems that Corona would have had to solve anyway. So it deserves the, the rank of, of real first spy satellite, even though technically never orbited. But again, secret Eisenhower space facts. That's nothing b- bad in that in that sentence, Robin, as far as I'm concerned. So seasoned listeners know that in the, usually here in the second segment of Ken's Bookshelf, there's a point where we reach cross the respectability to kookiness barrier. And we're about to hit that now with Underground, the Disinformation Guide to Ancient Civilizations, Astonishing Archaeology and Hidden History, edited by Preston Pete. And uh, I don't know if you guys know the Disinformation Guide or the Disinfo Guide, but there was a, I, I forget, I, it may have even been a proto-website back in the day, but certainly it was a, a zine as well. And uh, it was a bunch of sort of, let's say, unorthodox, and let's say thinkers on various topics, conspiracies, UFOs, drug use, is the man trying to get you, or is the man just the man? All the big questions of the day, and amongst them are, what about those Atlantis? What about those ancient aliens? What about the secret history that we are being kept from by the dull insistence on actual carbon-14 dating? And Preston Pete has assembled a bunch of essays, as in all the other disinfo guides. This is the one on ancient civilizations. I found it relatively cheap and picked it up. And I I like the disinfo guides because they're very one-stop shopping. And Preston Pete, I feel like there's a kinship there that he, if he's given a choice between a fun and interesting version and a perhaps more staid version, always goes for the fun and interesting. And after all, isn't that what you want from your disinformation? Right. So he's, he's not disinforming you so much as he's declining to fun ruin. Exactly. I feel like, but also disinformation because it's sold to credulous goofs. But there we are. (laughs) And to you. Now, Mysterious Monuments, Encyclopedia of Secret Illuminati Designs, Masonic Architecture, and Occult Places by Tex Mars. Now, I'm sure they're, you know, they were Masons. That architecture had something to do with it. There are Masonic signs, but you can handle that from a woo perspective or a, a boring look at this design on this wall perspective. What have we got here? Tex Mars is one of the great unsung Christian paranoids. He is the devil is everywhere. Ronald Reagan is making the Illuminati sign. He was the guy, if he's still alive, and I have no idea if he is, he's out there doing memes. He is very much that guy. And so this is a book of pictures of things that look kind of Masony and Illuminati E and they're good fun. They are more, you know, everything than curated. It's like, if he's got a picture, he'll, he'll toss it in there. I probably don't recommend buying anything by Tex Mars new because I'll bet he's also kind of concerned about, you know, the Rothschilds, but I feel like, you know, it's, it's such a document and such a, powerful part of American conspiracy theory and conspiracy life that if you get a chance to own a Tex Mars book, maybe, uh, and they're spendy because they're enormous and uh, the audience snapped them up. So it's very rare to find them used. I was very happy to find mysterious monuments for, you know, a relatively low price compared to what I've, I've seen it for elsewhere. Next, we come to Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure by Daniel J. Duke. And this is, I guess, a cautionary tale kids about buying books just because they say Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure on the cover. Now, (laughs) you would think 
that a book like this would be a big discussion of Jesse James and all of his treasure and all of his treasure maps. And then you would say, oh, look, it's Templars. This book has about eight pages on Jesse James in the front that says, well, Jesse James certainly had a mysterious treasure. Maybe it came from the Templars. And then the rest of the book is just maybe Templar stuff. And I've got vol I've got libraries. Got I've got a whole shelf labeled maybe Templars. Of maybe Templars. What I don't have is Jesse James. So I feel like a flip through in the bookstore might have uh, saved me a bit of irritation on, on that. I can't recommend Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure because not enough Jesse James. And uh, late breaking news, uh, Tex Mars uh, died in 2019. Ah, well, there you go. He's in a different and possibly better place now. Up there in heaven saying, ah, Illuminati designed that cloud. <laughs> yeah, and uh, angels are telling me, you know, that was really crazy. Next, we come to Jack the Ripper's New Testament. I would not want Jack the Ripper's New Testament. I don't even Occultism want his Old Testament. and Bible Mania in 1888 by Nigel Gravin. Yeah, this is the opposite of that Jesse James book, because this sort of says, well, we know you know about Jack the Ripper. What we're going to do is tie him into Bible revision scholarship and a secret conspiracy of uh, Catholic spies and murderers. And that is how you want to do things. You don't want... Just an endless uh, cheese pairing. I guess this is the opposite. This is like, I've already got a bunch of books about Jack the Ripper. And Nigel Graddon says, I didn't want to just write a book about Jack the Ripper. What would I have to contribute to that? What I'm going to do is talk about his uh, connection to the Bible revisory committees of uh, Victorian England in the 1880s. And is there a connection? I certainly hope so. But I'm just happy that Nigel Graddon made the effort. He's a uh, Adventures Unlimited Press author and is, I, I think, wants to put his book into the Adventures Unlimited Press cinematic universe because he's, you know, citing all manner of other AUP books, Joseph Farrell's crazy nonsense. So uh, I'm, I'm very excited by this Graden book. I'm about quarter of the way through it, and it's good fun. Next, we come to a book on a subject you've written a book on, The Nazis and the Supernatural, The Occult Secrets of Hitler's Evil Empire by Michael Fitzgerald. You made up a bunch of stuff on purpose. How much stuff do you think Michael Fitzgerald made up? I opened this book in the half price books and I both, I mostly bought it for library completeness reasons. There's a lot of terrible books on the topic. There's a lot of mediocre bo books on the topic. There's one masterpiece on the topic and then there's my also excellent book. But this book, I opened it and it, the table of contents was almost identical to my Nazi occult table of contents. And for one brief moment, I thought this guy just took my book and wrote it bigger, but <laughs> I checked and I feel like it's just, you know, Darwin and Wallace, Michael Fitzgerald wanted to say the same entirely untenable things about the Ark of the Covenant that I did. So there's elements of it that seemed weirdly familiar. There's elements of it that seemed sort of by the numbers. I don't know that I, you know, say this is your one-stop shop on Nazis and the supernatural, but it seemed like a more than adequate survey. And if I, you know, once I read it in detail, I'll, I'll know if there's, you know, that one little nugget of, of wonderful fact that, that makes it worth it. And finally, we go back to the realm of crazy and fun on purpose with Anno Dracula 1999, Daika Kaiju by Kim Newman. Yeah, the Anno Dracula universe, I think people know this, is a alternate universe where uh, that diverges in Chapter 6 of Dracula, in which Dracula manages to take over London uh, because the, the crew of light does not find his London hideout. And so he, he takes over London, becomes Queen Victoria's uh, prince consort, 
He's eventually defeated, but not before vampirism has been instituted into every aspect of Western society. It's mostly Kim Newman's excuse to drop a million names from movies, film, and obscure fiction, including his own obscure fiction. And by now, it's sort of, you know, the meta is the joke. So this is Die Hard, but with vampires, uh, is what it is. And so it's Kim Newman having great fun. Kim Newman is great fun. I'm a fan of the universe. I'm not sure that I'm as giddy at the in-jokes after, you know, iteration 10 or 15 as everybody is, but I certainly enjoy a, a good Kim Newman novel. And this, again, was half price, hence the name of the bookstore. Yeah, because the theory is basically if you're going to do a pastiche, why not pastiche everything? Exactly. Well, on that note, I think uh, we've uh, run through both of your boxes of books. So we can put down our imaginary boxes of books, relax our uh, real and or imaginary arms, uh, and be back uh, for another episode a mere week from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Maintain the circusy dream that is this podcast by joining such oneric backers as... Lewis R. Evans. Toon Spew. Alan Wilkins. Dave Stucco. And Jack Gulick. Where this show... Or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate avian brigandage with our latest design, Stormy Petrels of Crime. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.